Thank you for listening to sermons from South City Church. Our mission as a church is to demonstrate God's greatness by advancing a gospel that transforms people into fully devoted followers of Jesus. For more information on South City Church, please visit us at southcitymke.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash southcitymke. So we're coming back to our series in 1 Peter, and it's been a while since we've been in 1 Peter. So it, uh, it's probably appropriate and fitting that we do a little bit of a review and remind ourselves where we are in the book and what this book is about. As you may remember from earlier this spring when we were in the book of 1 Peter, uh, the book of 1 Peter is written to Christians, Christian communities, various churches in Asia Minor. And we see from what's in the book that they're in hostile environments. There are people that are subject to mistreatment and it seems marginalization. And what Peter is doing in this book is he's reminding them of their special status. He's reminding them that they are God's chosen elect people, that they are, as he calls, God's priests, God's temple, his special people, the the recipients and the heirs of so great a salvation. But with that special status, as we see as we look at the book, we see that they are also then set apart not only to be saved, but then they're set apart in this world as a sojourning community, a group of exiles. They're called to be set apart. And with that, we find, often comes the fact that they are a suffering community. They are a community who faces mistreatment, and there's a rift between them and the rest of society. And so Peter spends a lot of time talking about their conduct towards non-believers, their conduct towards the outside world. And when we came to chapter 2, about halfway through chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we see this mission-oriented submission that these various groups are to have towards those in the outside world. And we see him addressing specific groups like citizens in the state, and he addresses wives, and he even addresses slaves. And so he talks about these specific groups. How are they to respond to the outside world? And now when we come to chapter 3, verse 8 and following, he, he expands from specific groups of people now to the entire community, to the community as a whole, and how they are specifically to respond and handle themselves when they're mistreated. That's the question of today's text is how is the Christian community to respond to mistreatment? How is a Christian community to respond to mistreatment? How is the Christian to navigate his or her life in a hostile, even abusive environment? And this may, in some measure, feel a little bit at odds for us because we can look at other parts of the world where Christians are treated much more poorly than we are. And we might feel that in our context this is a little bit less than relevant, but I think it is relevant and increasingly relevant as we are sort of finding ourselves in an increasingly less sort of the facade of Christianity in our culture is decreasing, and Christianity even at times is viewed as something that is threatening and opposed to the common good. We find ourselves more marginalized and more in a hostile environment, that the the degree to which maybe in other cultures it's more prevalent, we might say it's a higher degree, the same sort of principle applies for us, the same quality. And so this is a relevant 
text for us today. Let's read what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. God, we ask for your grace to understand this passage this morning. In our natural selves and in our sinful selves, we are unable to understand what you would have for us in your word. We are blinded by sin, but through your work of the Spirit, we trust that you will grant us the ability to not only understand what the text is saying, but apprehend it truly and embrace it in our own lives as we seek to live this out. Give us a, not only an understanding, but a willing heart to submit to these truths. Help us to see their implications for our lives and help us to respond in such a way that we follow your Son more wholeheartedly and that you get the glory as a result. Amen. So I want to begin where Peter does in verse 8. And in verse 8, Peter talks about the type of community that we're to be as we face mistreatment. So as we consider mistreatment, he begins with what type of community we are to be as we face that mistreatment. Look at verse 8. We just read it. Verse 8, Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Okay, so the context here, as he talks about community in this verse, verse 8, the context is mistreatment from non-believers. Okay, if you look just down at verse 9, just one verse lower, he talks about facing evil from them and being reviled. He's talking about these traits of community in the context of facing opposition and mistreatment. But before he gets on in verses 9 and following to talking about how we respond to non-believers who do those things, he wants to first talk about how believers relate to each other in verse 8. Okay, and of course the assumption is this. The assumption is that we as a church are a distinct people, as Peter has been talking about, and we're called to live differently. We have a different calling. We have a different aim, a different mission. We have a different set of values, a different shot caller, a different Lord. And with those differences, that makes us a countercultural community in comparison to the rest of society. We're going to feel a rift between ourselves in society. We're going to feel a dissonance. We're going to feel a clash. We may feel isolated. We may even, as the audience here in, that Peter's writing to, we may even feel hostility and opposition. And so what Peter's doing in verse 8 as he talks about community, his point is that he's identifying these sort of traits 
that will empower and sustain the community as it responds properly to this hostility. That these traits are intended to reinforce the community's cohesion and its ability to provide support to its members as it faces mistreatment and hostility. The point is that Christian community should be a place of refuge for the believer. It should be a place of nourishment and strengthening. That as we face mistreatment and, and, and hostility from the outside, we shouldn't expect to see that sort of hostility inside the church. What Peter's saying here has significant implications for how we understand the church. Our relationships with one another as a community here, our dynamics as a community, impact how we engage the outside world. Or to state it differently, our ability to engage and respond properly to the world, verse 9 and following, notice, starts and is dependent somewhat on the health of our community in verse 8. Okay, community is incredibly important in Scripture, and we see that here. The priority of the community in our lives. That's why he begins in verse 8. And let's look at some of the traits that he identifies. He talks about having the same mind. This idea of unity, harmony, avoiding division. That as we face assaults from the outside, there's an internal stability and a cohesion on the inside. How can we support one another if there's, as we face this onslaught, how can we support one another if we're onslaughting ourselves, if we have strife internally? The believer is sustained in the context of community. And the unity here is the ecosystem in which that strong sense of unity is made possible. He talks about sympathy, caring deeply about others' needs, their joys, and their sorrows. I think of Romans 12, 15, where Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, that we share in the highs and lows with other people. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together, that, are, that we're bound up with each other, and we have sympathy with each other, that we relate to one another. Our, we, we have this sort of care and compassion towards each other that's needed to, as we are a community facing this sort of hostility and isolation. He talks about brotherly love, playing on this idea of the church as a family. Notice brotherly love. It's a, it's a love that people have towards their siblings, in other words. When we think of the family, we think of the deepest sort of bonds, at least in the healthy, ideal family. Deep bonds, unbreakable bonds. And this is the sort of bonds that Peter says we are to have as believers, as a church. A brotherly love. And get this too, at the backdrop, that this is incredibly important. This sort of bonds, they're incredibly important because for the Christian, we face the prospect of actually having those normal family bonds and other social ties broken because of our Christianity. There's an important value to the Christian bond because of the prospect of the isolation and the rift we face socially, even potentially our family relationships, which is no surprise because when we think of what Christ said, Christ himself told us that in Luke 12, as a result of his coming, that there would be division, even the division between family members 
between siblings and parents and their kids. And this is no surprise, because Christ himself told us in Luke 14 that whoever does not hate their father and mother is not worthy of falling, which of course is hyperbolic, but the point nonetheless remains that there's a loyalty to Christ that goes above, that is above all else, even that of our family. And so family ties might even be broken, but the beauty of it is this, that Christ doesn't leave us then without a family, but as he says in Luke 8, his followers now constitute a new family. And that's what Peter is playing on here. The fact that we are a new family and we show brotherly love to one another, that that in the midst of hostility and mistreatment and even potentially disassociation from our family, the church becomes our family. He speaks of having a tender heart. Again, the idea of being compassionate, the sort of compassion that we need to sustain a community that's marginalized. He talks about having a humble mind. I think of what Paul says in Romans 12.3, that not thinking of oneself more highly than we ought. What it means to have a humble mind. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And humility is, it's like, it's a relational virtue. It has to do with our relationships with one another. It's quite possible that there is no other trait more important when it comes to the health of a community than humility. And that's because humility is the opposite of things like pride and selfishness, which are like a poison to a church's health and unity. As James 4 says, the cause of all division and strife is our selfish pride. We fight because we are fighting for what we want. And we're putting ourselves first. It's, it's impossible to seek out the good of others, the good of the community, when we are out for our own good, and when other people's good is an, is an obstacle in the way of us getting what we want. And so Peter here calls us to be humble and to put other people first, just as Paul said in Philippians 2. In ch- chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said this, Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And what does that look like? Verse 4, it looks like, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And so what we see here is we see that Peter is is identifying traits that that are crucial for the community functioning and empowering and sustaining itself in the midst of hostility. So he begins by talking about how we relate to one another in verse 8, and now as we move to verse 9 and following, we'll see how he then says we're actually to respond to others, to those outside the community, to those who potentially even mistreat us. So look at verse 9, which is really the heart of this passage. And in verse 9 he says this, What are we to do? How do we relate to those who mistreat us? It's this. You do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, you bless. What's our common reaction when we're mistreated and people would seek to do us harm? Our common reaction is we want to defend ourselves. We say, don't do that to me. Okay, it's, a, it's a bit of our selfishness and our pride kicking in, where we've made an, idol, we've made an idol of ourselves, and we're going to lash out at anything that would insult or threaten that. 
Okay? We don't trust God's justice, that we want to enact it ourselves. We want to get back. We want to settle the score. We want to get even. We want to take vengeance into our own hands. You can't treat me like that. But this only continues the evil. Okay, we often feel justified. We wouldn't necessarily say it like this, but we feel justified responding to evil in kind, with evil. We feel justified. They did it to me, so now it's okay for me to respond that way. But this only continues the evil. Evil returned for evil is still evil. And so in so doing, what we are only doing is continuing this escalating cycle of retaliation and revenge. And what, what Peter is saying here is he, he's advancing an ethic of non-retaliation. We don't retaliate. We don't return evil for evil. When evil is done to us, we don't strike back. And although he's addressing, it seems like he's not really specifying one type of mistreatment, all sorts of types of mistreatment are probably in view here, this would seem to have implications for nonviolence. That if we're not to return any sort of evil for evil, this would include not returning violence as well. But as if that wasn't enough, Not only is Peter saying we don't respond evil for evil, we don't retaliate, get this, the ethic goes beyond that. The ethic goes beyond that. Not only do we refrain from evil from evil, we actually return evil with good. It's more than just non-retaliation. We reply to insult notice with blessing. With blessing. Blessing this idea of wishing God's favor on someone else. We're seeking their good. And in so doing, what Peter is, what he's doing here is he's picking up on this, this really pre- prevalent theme, this prevalent ethic that, that stems back to Jesus, and then we see is carried out in the early church. We see it reflected in our New Testament scriptures. And what I want to do, there's so much that could be said here. What I want to do, I just want to survey those texts and let us feel the weight of these texts. That Peter's drawing on the teaching of Jesus here. Jesus says in Matthew 5, and Holly read this earlier, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, similar language here from Christ. Verse 27, but I say to you, You who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, so also do so so to them. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, that is God, is kind not only to the good, but notice to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And then we see this reflected in the New Testament. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says this, verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another 
and to everyone. And in 1 Corinthians 4, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Okay, and there's Romans 12 as well. We're going to look at that later, so I won't read that here. But we could look at Romans 12. We could look at the book of 1 Peter in chapter 2, and now here in chapter 3. And there is so much that could be said. For the sake of time, I won't get into all the sort of implications and applications. Um, we're going to take some time on Wednesday in our community group to talk about those. But I just want us to feel the weight, at least, at this point, and spend some time now looking at the reason Peter gives. The reason Peter gives for this non-retaliation, even doing good to our enemies. And the reason we find at the second half of verse 9 till the end. Obtaining God's blessing. Obtaining God's blessing. The end of verse 9. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain, or as some translations say, inherit a blessing. Notice the play on words. We bless those who curse that we may be blessed. We bless those who curse to obtain or inherit a blessing. He's playing on, he's playing on that theme here. And what we see is that the consequence of, of doing verse 9, of being a people that does not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we actually do good, the consequence is that we obtain a blessing. That those who do not return evil for evil are those who receive God's blessing. And then he cites Psalm 34, and I would ask you to turn to Psalm 34. Now, I want us to take a look at the psalm in context. He, he cites Psalm 34 as the reason for this. This is, this is why I believe this. And he already cited Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 2.3, where he said, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, that was from this psalm as well. And so this psalm is very influential in Peter's thought. He cited it twice in the same letter. It's a psalm of deliverance. It's a psalm of deliverance. That means that this is a psalm that praises God for his rescuing and his deliverance, specifically David praising God for intervening and, intervening and saving him out of his trouble. And it's also a very fitting psalm. Because Peter is addressing those who are afflicted and those who are suffering. And this psalm, as David, as David speaks this psalm and writes it here, he, it's spoken to those who are afflicted and those who are suffering. The psalm celebrates God as a God who saves and, and in whom the afflicted can take their refuge. Look at verse 4 of the psalm. We'll just get a little bit of a snap of, snapshot of this. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord... And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, he saved me out of all my troubles. It's a psalm that praises God that he intervenes and he saves and he rescues. But the question then is this, who are those that he does rescue? Who are the ones that he's rescuing in this way? And that leads us down to verses 12 and falling, which is a section, verses 12 through 15 specifically, which is a section that Peter cites in 1 Peter 3, verses 12 through 15 of Psalm 34. Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In other words, what person is there that wants to prosper? Prosper specifically in this context in terms 
of having your refuge in God, having God on your side as your protector and your deliverer. Who is that person? Who, he's, the psalm is asking, who is the person who's like that? Who is the person that wants that? What characterizes them? Look at the verse that follows, verse 13 and 14. It comes in the form of a command. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Can you hear almost Peter like echoing in the background? It's no wonder he cites this passage. The, the psalmist says, keep your tongue from evil. What does Peter say? Don't return evil for evil. Or the psalmist says, keep your tongue from evil. Don't return reviling for reviling. The psalmist says, turn from evil. Peter says, don't return evil for evil. It's this person, this person that keeps her tongue from evil, turns away, keeps her tongue from insult, turns away from evil, just as Peter said, does not return evil for evil, does not return reviling for reviling. It's this person, the righteous one, whom God favors and God delivers. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That is, he's aware of them. He attends to them in their, in their situation, their predicament and his ears towards their cry, that in the sense that he's going to hear their prayer. He hears and he intervenes and he saves them. God is on the side of the righteous. But notice, we continue in verse 16. How does God relate to the wicked? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And we see the themes continuing to reiterate in verse 17 and following. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is the blessing that Peter is talking about. That you may obtain a blessing. It's this, it's this blessing that God is on your side. God is there to intervene, to save, to protect, to rescue. He hears your cries. He hears your prayers. And it's because God is on the side of the righteous. Why is it that it's those who do not return evil for evil that obtain this blessing so that we may obtain the blessing? Precisely what the psalm says. Because God is on the side of the righteous. He's on the side of those who don't return with insult and those who don't respond with evil. Does this mean that we earn God's blessing, that it's somehow a works-based thing? Of course not, because as we just said, it was to inherit the blessing. You don't earn an inheritance. You're given an inheritance. It's something you receive. And the psalm doesn't say that the blessing is earned by those who don't return evil. It merely says that it belongs to them. God, as the God who loves righteousness, takes the side of the righteous. He will vindicate the righteous way of living. And so this is significant, because what this psalm is implying, what Peter is saying here, is that God's people, how do you identify those on whom God is on their side? God's people are the people characterized by verse 9, a people who return good for evil. Those are God's people. Those are the people he delivers and he rescues. And although the psalm here, where David is writing this psalm, it has to do with the fact that God delivered him in this life, and certainly God cares and he intervenes in this life, we know that that's not always the case. 
We know that there's a lot of times where, even as the book of Ecclesiastes says, the righteous seem to just go on suffering, and they're never vindicated, and the unrighteous continue and are never punished. Peter himself tells us that we should expect persecution and trouble. We shouldn't be surprised. And so we know ultimately the truths of this psalm are ultimately expressed in the coming of Christ at the end of the day when God's going to right all wrongs and punish the wicked. This is how the Christian then can refrain from retaliating. This is how we can do verse 9 by not returning evil for evil, but returning evil for good, because we're able to trust in God as a God of justice and the promise that he will judge the wicked and set things right. In other words, we don't need to avenge ourselves. We don't need to avenge ourselves because we trust God and we leave the vengeance in his hands, which brings us to Romans 12. Romans 12 picks up on this theme. Also reminiscent of Jesus' teaching and what Peter is saying here. Romans 12 verse 14 says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but what? We overcome evil with good. Our response to evil is not to respond in kind, but good. And then the basis is clear in Romans 12, verse 19. Just what the psalm is saying, just what Peter is saying. Verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Why? But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. We can, we can do what verse 9 says, not returning evil for evil, not defending ourselves, not, not taking vengeance into our own hands, because we trust that to God, who is the God of vengeance. And we see this ultimately expressed in the person of Christ. The truths of this song are ultimately expressed and embodied in Jesus, who entrusted himself to God. You think about Jesus at the cross. He's trusting himself to God. He's refraining as people abuse him and and spit in his face and tear out his beard. He's not returning evil for evil. He blesses those who even are killing him, saying, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so it's no surprise that at Jesus' death, John 19, the Gospel of John, actually cites Psalm 34 and saying that none of his bones are broken. That none of Jesus' bones are broken. Jesus is the ultimate picture of Psalm 34. He, as, as David is, 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 is crying and, and praising God for his deliverance, John, the Gospel of John comes and says, that is ultimately filled in Jesus, the son of David, the ultimate king of David. In Jesus' death, he entrusts himself to the Father, and the truths of the psalm are given their fullest expression. And the Father's deliverance of Christ and in Christ's resurrection is the ultimate testimony of what the psalm is saying about how God promises to rescue the righteous. The Father rescued the Son. He delivered him in his resurrection. And it's this pattern of suffering, the suffering of Christ, that gives shape to our call to suffer. 
If you look back at verse 9, Peter said this, For to this you were called. For to this you were called, which is language that's incredibly reminiscent of chapter 2. If you're not in, back in 1 Peter, please, please turn there and look at chapter 2, 1 Peter 2. Peter is saying, to this you are called, language that brings us back to chapter 2. What is our calling? Chapter 2 makes it clear. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, literally a pattern, so that you might follow in his steps. This is our calling, to embrace Christ's pattern of suffering. That we might be conformed to his pattern of suffering. And throughout the New Testament, we see this theme. That Peter is drawing on a theme we see throughout the New Testament of the the fact that believers share in Christ's suffering and are conformed and, and made like Christ in his suffering. So in Romans 8, 17, we see that those who will share in Christ's glory will also share with him in suffering. That those who are going to be conformed and made like Christ in his glory, that is our ultimate salvation, being transformed, rid of sin, resurrected, made totally new, those who will be made like Christ in his glory, sharing in his glory, are going to be made like Christ and conformed to Christ in his suffering. We're going to share in his suffering. Suffering as the pathway to glory, just as it was for Christ. And so likewise, Paul in Philippians 3.10 can say that he desires to share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like Christ in his death, because that means he's going to share with Christ in his resurrection from death, this glory. Peter himself in chapter 4, verse 13 says, Rejoice insofar, insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because you're going to share in his glory too if you're sharing in his suffering. Falling Christ entails embodying this path of suffering. As Jesus warned us in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And and Jesus himself said that if you're going to follow me, you must embrace my cross. Anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. The person who would follow Christ must die with Christ. Our salvation involves being united to Christ, sharing in Christ, and becoming like Christ. We are conformed increasingly into his image. And part of that means being conformed to Christ and being made like him in his suffering and death. He is a pattern for us, dying to self and being united to him in suffering as this pathway to sharing with him in glory. And what does that, pa- that pattern, Christ's pattern of suffering, look like? Continuing in chapter 2, verse 22, 1 Peter two twenty-two, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not return. He did not revile in return. Sound familiar? He did not re, he repay reviling for reviling. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Okay? He did not, as, as chapter 3, verse 9 says, he did not repay evil for evil, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ did not retaliate or seek his own vengeance, but entrusted himself to God 
the God of justice who, punish, who, who will punish the wicked and defend the righteous, just as Psalm 34 said. This, Peter says, is our calling. The pattern that Christ set for us as we share with him in death to glory. <laughs>